from Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida. This is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Nikki Taylor. This week, we'll journey through the end of Proverbs, the entire book of Ecclesiastes, and the beginning of Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. As far as Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs are concerned, when we come across them in our Bibles, they can really seem out of place, but for different reasons. We'll dive into each of these unique texts in an interview with the Reverend Dr. Brent Strawn, professor of Old Testament and professor of law at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. Brent has written numerous texts on the Old Testament and has also written the commentary for Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs for the 2013 Common English Bible Study Bible. Let's get started. Thanks for being with us today, Brent, to discuss uh, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. So two interesting books as we're reading through the Bible this year. Uh, But let's start with the book of Ecclesiastes. So as we're reading through the Bible and we get to this book in particular, I think it can throw us off a bit. So what is going on in this text and why is it in our Bible? Well, great questions, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, A lot's going on in this book, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, it's short, but it's uh, it's taking on a lot of big issues, and it takes on a lot of these issues in a kind of a confusing way, less than straightforward way. Um, That's a good way to say it. Yeah, I mean, things start off kind of make sense up through chapter two, maybe beginning of three, where he's kind of telling us a, a story of his of his life, narrating his life kind of. But then mm-hmm. then after that, it gets kind of squirrely. And um, I think that's the technical term. And uh, yeah. But in terms of what's going on, I mean, he's he's really up against the main issues of life, namely death mm-hmm. and um, finitude and God. And I think at the end of the day, those three things are really just one thing, which is which is the problem of finitude mm-hmm. and the finitude experienced in its most extreme form for us human beings is in fact death. Yeah. And finitude experienced in its negative form, the lack of finitude is is God. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. that both Kohelet's, uh, that's his Hebrew name, by okay. the way, Kohelet's uh, problems if in life, if, as it were, are really ultimately a problem with finitude flexed in two dire- directions. The, the human side, namely, I'm going to die. And the divine mm-hmm. side, there's God to deal with who, who doesn't die. Mm-hmm. And the book seems to open with a reflection on life, right? You kind of, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. sort of ends with a reflection on death. Like, yes, that's right. Well, yeah. and, and, you know, the book is, is, uh, as we've already said a bit, hard to figure out in terms of structure, but it does begin with a kind of a third person narrative introduction to the book in one, one, mm-hmm. and it ends with a third person narrative conclusion to the book in 12, mm-hmm. nine to 14, that brackets the book. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, there's a motto in, in, in one verse two, and that motto is repeated in 12, eight. So that's another internal uh, frame and then the book opens with this poem about this uh, kind of the 
cosmos and the world and it ends then in 12 1 through 7 as you just said matt with a, with another poem on, on kind of death in the cosmos so these these ways there's kind of three internal frames to the book mm. but inside those frames it, it's a lot more loosey-goosey yeah yeah in addition to the idea of finitude where does the um language about the evil, the evildoers sort of not getting their dues, right? He's sort of questioning the, the wisdom of, of Proverbs or even of um, Deuteronomy, right? That you, you behave in good ways and good things happen, right. bad ways and bad things happen. But he kind of says, well, not all the time. Right. Yeah. So Ecclesiastes falls into what we call the, the skeptical pole of, of, of wisdom literature or the, the, the books that are associated with wisdom in the Old Testament. So that's basically Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And they, they fall into sort of two poles or camps. One is a kind of a traditional or mainstream kind of wisdom that's mostly positive, and that, that's, that's Proverbs. Mm-hmm. Works in kind of probability theory, three out of four times this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, if, <laughs> right, you're, right. Yeah. if you're industrious, things are going to work out. And um, if you brush your teeth, uh, you know, you're probably not going to get cavities. Um, that's a slight yeah. update, but, <laughs> but I'm sure they would be on board with that. Where's that and verse? Then, <laughs> I need that for my eight-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in the skeptical poll is you got Job and Ecclesiastes. Mm. These are also kind of probability theory, um, but maybe even more experiential because mm. they've, they've noted the, they've noted the exception to the rule. Um, they've noted that uh, sometimes you brush your teeth and you get cavities. Yeah. Uh, or sometimes you're perfect and upright like like Job and you get the raw end of the deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ecclesiastes is even further down the, the, the line. Um, he's, uh, I think, uh, even more unclear about the, the nature of the relationship, if any, between cause and effect and wise living and end results. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one famous Ecclesiastes commentator said that, Kohelet is Job who failed the test. Uh, ah. And it's kind of a fascinating uh, line about that. Um, so he's he definitely is, is, on the one hand, problematizing any sort of cause-effect relationship uh, between what happens in life and how we would know that. In fact, one of the key verses in the book is, is chapter 3, um, uh, verse 11 where it says after this poem on the seasons, which is a familiar mm-hmm. line, um, God made everything fitting in its time, but has also placed eternity in their hearts without enabling them to discover what God has done from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, Kohelet really thinks that God is responsible for everything. I mean, really at one point later in the book says kind of just offhandedly God who, who does everything. But at the same time, he, he basically says you can't know exactly what God's doing, and you mm-hmm. definitely can't know why God is doing it. Um, so it's a so it's a stunning it's a stunning critique in that sense of of much of what's come before um, in the wisdom material, and and also maybe even a stunning critique of his own teaching that he that maybe even he has to come in for critique by his own words that that he doesn't maybe know everything either. Mm, yeah, I, I love how relatable this book is when you get into it and you realize <laughs> that's really the way life is. We all know that, you know, three out of four times the things that, for example, in Proverbs say are true, that if you do mm-hmm. good things, good things will happen to you. But we know those exceptions to the rules exist. Uh, right. But 
So um, when we're talking about the author of Ecclesiastes, um, do we Mm -hmm. know? Do we know who that is? Do we know anything about him that might help us as we're reading through this text? We don't really know anything besides the words that the author has given us. Um, the The author, I, or the final author, technically would be the person who who narrates the book to us. the The person who writes verse one one, mm-hmm. and then the verse person or persons who writes twelve nine through fourteen. Maybe they're not even the same person. We don't we mm-hmm. don't even know that. But that person's uh, that. Per- you know, kind of hand or voice is typically called the frame narrator. Um, and that person is basically presenting us with the words of Kohelet. That's his, again, his Hebrew name, uh, or Ecclesiastes as it gets called in, in Greek and, and then, uh, and in uh, Latin and eventually into English. So the, there's sort of two personas, um, the persona of the, of the narrator and then the persona of the not necessarily the author, but the speaker, mm-hmm. Kohelet, um, and but in a sense they they are collapsed. I mean, maybe maybe Kohelet is a persona adopted by the narrator um, and used as a kind of a person to look at, you know, an example. Um, so mm-hmm. we don't we don't really know. And so, uh, speaking of the themes of Ecclesiastes, so the a key word, a key idea that kind of keeps coming o- up over and over throughout the book is the idea that everything is pointless. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically, that word comes up a lot, pointless. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what is the author trying to convey with that word? Oh, man, that's a kind of a million-dollar question. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of ink's yeah. been spilled over that in uh, in my field, and that's what keeps uh, people like me in, in business, you know? <laughs> we got <laughs> we to have something to do. It's not like we're mowing our own yards or anything, you know? So, um, so uh, yeah, the, the translation in the in the Common English Bible puts this as pointless or, or uh, in this emphatic construction in one, two, perfectly pointless as the teacher. And the, and the teacher mm. word is Kohelet in Hebrew. Uh, perfectly pointless as the teacher or Kohelet. Perfectly pointless. Everything is pointless. This is the Hebrew word hevel. And um, the reason why it's kind of important to name it is because um, it, it does occur – a lot in the book. It, mm-hmm. How many times exactly is, is itself a matter of debate, but it seems to be at least 37 times, over 30 times. Wow. wow. And Co- that's a Co- lot Hellet. for a short book. It's <laughs> a lot for a short book. And uh, it's translated in different ways in different tra- uh, translations. So the New Revised Standard Version uses the old uh, translation, vanity, vanity mm-hmm. of vanities. Everything mm-hmm. is vanity. Um, sometimes you get translations like meaningless, um, or mm-hmm. ephemeral or whatever, but, but Hevel, this word has to do is related to like a kind of a puff of air, you know, smoke, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a mist or something. You can't quite grasp it. And, uh, it's actually the same word that's used uh, as the name for Cain's brother in Genesis four, Abel, uh, his mm. name in Hebrews is Hevel. And he doesn't even get a speaking part. If you remember that story, yeah. I mean, right. he, he's, yeah. he's one, he's there one second and gone the next. I mean, he doesn't even get to utter a line before he's gone. Mm-hmm. And that captures in some ways at the narrative level, the, 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 the ephemeral nature of what Kohel is talking about. Life and what in the topics he talks about, they're just ungraspable. You you just can't get your hands on they 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 slip through your fingers, and so I think that's what what 
pointless is about for him, that there's maybe no ultimate meaning to these things. And mm. meaning, therefore, is not to be found in some ultimacy, some sort of inf- infinite project, because only God has the infinite project locked down, right? Mm-hmm. The human project is always, always inescapably finite, which means it's not really going anywhere other than to the grave for, for Kohelet. And so the ephemeral nature of, of our, of our task, our work, our projects is a really strong wake up call, a kind of, you know, cup of cold water in the face about maybe all that we strive for is really a striving after wind, as he puts Mm -hmm. it. And Mm -hmm. maybe the book as a whole then, because it it mentions pointless so many times, this Hebel 37 times, maybe it in fact is an extended meditation on what that word really means. Mm. So uh, again, as we're reading through, um, we've had this wonderful real text of Ecclesiastes. And then we get to Song of Songs, which is a love poem. And to be mm-hmm. honest, a pretty erotic love poem mm-hmm. for our Bible. Mm-hmm. One of the things I had read when kind of thumbing through your commentary in the CEB is uh, you mentioned that this could be a good example of a healthy relationship. And I think mm. in our world today, we have a lot of examples of bad relationships and a lot mm-hmm. of examples of unhealthy things um, not to do in a relationship. So um, talk to us a little bit about this, about how maybe this could be a good example of a healthy relationship for us to look at today. Sure. So I think, you know, in recent years, I mean, to kind of back into your question a little bit, I wanted to add that in addition to the, um, you know, the figural reading, the, uh, the allegorical religious reading, in recent years, there's been much more emphasis on the fact that maybe this book, at least in its original uh, iteration, was really basically erotic love poetry. Um, mm-hmm. And so so the eros in the book shouldn't be downplayed. Uh, it shouldn't be too quickly spiritualized, that it might actually truly celebrate the real love between a man and a woman, and, and in fact, a love that's also marked by sexual desire, among other things. Um, and I think that's an important point. <clears throat> I think it's also important to point out that in the Song of Songs, the eroticism, that, that term is sort of spoiled for us. We, we think the worst. Um, we think pornographic. <laughs> yeah. We think yeah. pornographic. The book of, 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 of the song is, is very much reticent in this regard. There's, there's innuendo going on, mm-hmm. as I say in my classes, you know, something's going on down in that garden that these mm-hmm. kids are at. Something <laughs> 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 is going on in that garden. I'm not sure exactly what, but something's happening and, and Marvin Gaye's on the radio yep. or you know, <laughs> yes. Barry White or Bruno Mars or Ed Sheeran. You, you pick your favorite love yeah. singer. That person is on the radio and <laughs> something's going on and down that garden. But we don't know exactly because the poet has been appropriately discreet. Right. And right. so mm-hmm. what I think that's one of the first things I'd say to kind of get at your question, Nikki, is that the song models for us a way to talk about desire and love, even erotic desire and love in a way that is um, discreet, that's modest, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that doesn't, you know, show everything with all the lights on, like our latest thing we're watching on TV or streaming or something that doesn't, that that doesn't sort of dehumanize the, the subjects, um, but rather 
is elusive and and therefore elusive. Um, we we really don't know what's going on in that garden. We don't know what these you know the, these mountains are and these spices and and the fruit. I mean, we, in a couple of cases we do, but really it's not. It's never quite mapped out for us. And mm-hmm. so the song models for us a kind of um, modest. Uh, desire and an appropriateness of how to speak about such things. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're it, oh, go ahead, yeah. Brad. Oh, well, I was just to say the, the other thing to more directly to your question, I think is the, is that the song models a, a real mutuality and egalitarian mm-hmm. relationship between yes. the man and woman in a way that the, the, the book, the Bible, this, this stands out in the rest of the Bible. I mean, even the new Testament, there's no, there's no female voice that speaks as much as in the song. Mm-hmm. I mean, the female voice, the woman speaks more than the man and she speaks first and she speaks last. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says things to him like he says to her and what their relationship is marked by this kind of mutuality and egalitarianism that is just kind of, you know, it's just striking. It stands out in the patriarchal society that is ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the, uh, you know, the, period of the early church that that, that heck that's that's the period of up to the present day yes. right? so, so, yes. so that that kind of mutuality between the sexes is crucial and a real sign i think of the way the song can help us in our relationships and you kind of mentioned this in your earlier comments but you say it explicitly in your um in your commentary that uh, the dominance of the female voice in the Song of Songs is unmatched anywhere else mm-hmm. in the Bible, and that, yeah, that's and that right. she's just given an equal role, if not a higher role, mm-hmm. in asserting herself and being a part of this uh, erotic relationship. That's right. It goes right into seven ten, where she says, "She says to him, uh, or about him at least, I belong to my lover, and his longing is only for me." Mm-hmm. So you know, again, that that couplet suggests you know on the one hand i belong to him that could be that could be construed in out of context as maybe an unhealthy relationship mm-hmm, right? right i mean but then but it's matched by that next line his longing is only for me yeah. so so that he belongs to me too in fact what she says there is really stunning because it's really a kind of reversal of what we find in the garden of eden story in mm-hmm. the garden of eden story after the fall it's after the fall that we get the you know the adversarial relationship that's introduced between the animal kingdom and the human population, also between the uh, the difficulty in agriculture uh, caused by humans and the war of the sexes. The war yeah. of the sexes is 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 a result of the fall, according to Genesis three. And what God says to the woman there in Genesis three is, "You your longing will be for him, and he will rule over you." Is what mm-hmm. is what that text says in Genesis three sixteen. But in the Song of Songs, she says his longing yeah. is only for me. I, I'm not longing for him anymore. He's longing for me, and the the the, the idea of ruling over me is completely gone. Mm-hmm. And what's stunning about that is here's two people, a man and a woman, just like the Garden of Eden, and and this, the man and the woman in the song are are in a garden a lot of the time, you know. With mm. with Barry White playing on the radio, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and that, just like Adam and Eve were, and so only now you get this reversal of the curse of the War of the mm. Sexes, mm-hmm. so that the Song of Songs is like an in, intercanonical answer to Genesis three. How do we conquer the the How do we conquer the problems with agriculture? Well, we build big tractors, right, yeah. and we we're able to. Oh, 
how do we counteract pain in childbirth? Well, we have epidurals and right. things like this. How do we how do we counter the war of the sexes? Oh, here it is in the Song of Songs: mutual egalitarian mm-hmm. love between a man and a woman, not marked by hierarchy, but rather marked by mutual care, concern, desire, love, longing. And yeah. and so the song is a is almost like the Garden of Eden 2.0. Let's do it better this time. And uh, and and that in and of itself is is good enough reason in my mind to to make sure it's in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I think um, hearing you say that it turns this text from something in that's really foreign or I, I mentioned when we were just chatting before our interview that when I read this in high school I thought oh should I stop is this inappropriate <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, right but it turns it into an empowering text about how I as a woman can and should and do um, have a uh, egalitarian relationship um, that's right with, right. with my husband. So, <laughs> and, and so that in that primary reference, cause I think that's the, that's the kind of the, that, uh, surface is not the right word. I don't mean it in, in a trivial way, but, but uh, the, the part is sort of plain sense of the text is that mm-hmm. the plain sense mm-hmm. of the text is, is a, a story about a man and woman in love and their desire and longing and affection for each other. And the dangers there are associated with that. I mean, the, the book has some vignettes that show the the difficulties and dangers of love, which is not surprising since the book says, you know, love is as strong as death and passionate love is unrelenting as the grave. But that deeper sense, too, of the song in light of its canonical context should also be kept in mind. And it, it, it's also represented in the book. So Elaine James has a, a, a lovely book on the Song of Songs and, and the land and which she points out that already the rabbis have noted that the woman is so frequently described with um, geographical metaphors, um, you know, uh, mountains or, mm-hmm. or um, you know, streams or gardens or uh, vineyards. And, and what the rabbi said was, ah, this is God speaking to the land of Israel, see, uh, because the woman is figured as the land. Well, and so the al- allegorical or figural reading might be embedded in there already. The point is, though, is that I think what that means is despite the, the plain sense of the text as being about a man and a woman, there might also be this additional reference, this a, a further meaning that the song really is a song about God and us. Whichever one is God and whichever one is us, I suppose, could still be up in the air. But mm-hmm. what's important is that God's love for us could be as passionate as that, you know, kind of uncomfortable song of songs. Right? <laughs> yes. and, and that and that our passion, believe it or not, could be equally uncomfortable towards God. Like the kind mm-hmm. of passion a married couple feel on their honeymoon night. Who <laughs> thinks of God that way? Well, the early church did, and so did the rabbis sometimes, uh, because of the Song of Songs gave them permission to. Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. These are strange texts that we're reading through, to say the least. But our conversation with Brent helped me to see these passages in a new light and discover new ways I could apply them to my everyday life. As you read through the passages this week, may you find new ways to think about life, purpose, and relationships from these texts. We'd love to have you join us for the conversation in our Facebook group or in one of our small groups from wherever you are listening from. You can find more information about our small groups at hydeparkumc.org groups and find our Facebook group by searching for The Bible Project 2020 on Facebook. It's been a pleasure to be on this journey with you. 
This is my last podcast before I begin a new appointment at United Methodist Temple in Lakeland, Florida. For the last time, I'm your host, Nikki Taylor. Keep journeying on.